Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right? right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation is really good. Move, get out of there. Organism, the Alien Saga Podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Green. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing okay, man. It's uh, I, I got to say this this uh, new normal of well, for one thing, for those of you who don't know, my wife started work, which is a really exciting thing. She studied to be a nurse for four years, including prerequisites, got her certificate, and was trying to get a job in this crazy time. She finally got a job as a dialysis nurse, and I'm really excited for it. It's an incredible. That's job. so awesome. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. I'm so proud of Micah for, for that, and and I'm so like excited because it's such a, it's just an it's an amazing career. But the uh, the issue though is that now, um, you know, I'm still working from home because of COVID and because we moved, and uh, and so now it's gotten very complicated with the distance learning stuff with the kids and with trying to do that in addition to my work, and I'm just feeling a little bit tired. But I'm also feeling like life is an adventure. And, uh, and it's okay to have to figure it out as you go along. And I'm trying to embrace that. And I feel very, very happy to be here tonight with one of my best buddies in the world talking about a movie that I'm gradually coming to like pretty <laughs> much. Bullshit. I have to say, I, I the, the more the more we talk about it, the more the more I like it. Uh, and, uh, and I actually think that this pr- the production design is something that I particularly am extremely interested in. Me too. But how are you doing? I'm doing well. This is my last recording at my current residence. I'm about to move myself. Um, I'm really excited about that. That's um, that's happening on Friday, so I'll be in my place by you know Friday late afternoon. Very excited. By the time people hear this episode, yes, yes. So it's essentially, it's closer to Los Angeles. I live in butt fucking Egypt right now, um, and I hate it. Um, and that's it was actually a, the name. That's the name of the town. Name, is, name is of the town. Fucking Egypt. Fucking yeah. Egypt. It's a, it's a bad. It's a terrible name for it's a actually, town. It's like very very weird. It's actually the town's name is Highland, and it's on the the Big Bear exit as you go up the mountain. So it's on the Big Bear exit. It's on the big fucking bear exit. You know? <laughs> the big bear. <laughs> <laughs> I love some big bears, you know. <laughs> Um, I, it's beautiful though I mean, i've seen pictures of it you know yeah, i uh ha- haven't beautiful. seen you in this place yet but 
Yeah, it looks it looks very nice. Yeah, it's, but um, it's great. You're gonna be closer to the city. You're gonna be living with some roomies. It's gonna be a nice setup. It's gonna be a very nice setup. Um, and I'm moving to a town called Claremont, which is again closer to Los Angeles, relatively um, quiet. No more children. No more nothing. Just silence. Um, so yeah, I'm excited about that. Um, of course, we there's a lot going on in this world right now. Elections coming up. <laughs> just a few things. Just a few things. Just, just a few things just going. The on. election of our lifetimes. Of <laughs> uh, anyway, the everything of our lifetimes. Yes. It, it, it's it's like the the more of these episodes we record under these conditions, I keep waiting for it to become normal, and yet every time we show up to record, I'm like, oh my god, this is still this mm-hmm. is still happening. Like, mm-hmm. We are still in the grips of this just unending cyclone of insanity that this year has become. Um, but we are we are getting there, and we are working through it, and. Um, I think film is something that is pulling us through in a lot of ways. Uh, if for no other reason, then we're now having to wait for fucking everything to come out. There have been so many delayed releases. Such bullshit. And, uh, and but I understand it why. It is crazy. It's, 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 it's the right thing to do from both a safety perspective and a business perspective. It is also horrible. It is also just incredibly sad. Well, it's also saddening. killing theaters, too. Movie theaters are like, we don't know it if is, we're going to survive. Yeah. So I don't... It's a tough thing because... Yeah. You want to have a movie theater open, but they also have to have movies to show. But if they don't have movies to show, people aren't going to come. Even if, like, Tenet was open, but not a lot of people showed up because people are afraid of... Um, are you still there? Oh, you are still there. Sorry. You, I, it froze oh, you're frozen you. for a second, but I, I can hear you okay. You're frozen with your eyes closed like this. <laughs> like the Pieta <laughs> or something. Well, um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a Catch-22 situation because... You're right. You need to have content, but content per- costs a lot to not only produce, but to distribute, right? And then you need to be able to show it, but to show it, you have to be able to pay for the content. And to pay for the content, you have to be getting people in the seats to buy concessions. But mm-hmm. even when you're getting people in the seats in these incredibly limited capacity theaters, you're not selling concessions because you're not allowed to take your mask off. So so like people are not buying stuff to eat because you're not supposed to be doing that. Mm-hmm. So there's like no engine for money in this situation. And also though, like, you know, like there, there are, there are still things that are occasionally being released, but they're being released in a context where we're being told by every public health professional, don't go to a movie theater. It's not safe to do that. So like, what are we well, supposed, I heard what that, are we supposed to, to be do? With you. I was, I haven't heard, see, I haven't read anything about how I've read things about movie theaters where they're like, be careful, but I haven't heard about any outbreaks happening in theaters. No, they're the highest risk category of activity you can do. Really? Yeah. They're in the tier three. Of in a crowded theater for sure. Of course. But, that's not even even in a social distance theater with a mask on. Interesting. It is a really because you're, you're in a basically a closed environment for multiple hours yeah, but, with other people, and you have no idea if they're being responsible. You but have no think idea about an airplane though. You're even in closer proximity in an airplane with recycled yeah, that's air. That's why that's also a tier three yeah. space. Yeah, it's, it's also the most dangerous. Although public health professionals say, I love how this episode is just talking about how paranoid I am about COVID. Public health professionals also say though that the airport is really the issue with with air travel more than the airplane because hmm. the airplane is sort of a controlled environment and you know you have to get tested and everything like that and blah blah blah. But within an airport, all these people congregating at a gate, there was just so much transmissibility risk in that kind of a, a scenario. Anyway, all this being said, everything sucks, but movies will be coming back and i think it is up to hollywood and we should do a show on this like a crossover episode because this has been on my mind constantly i think it's up to hollywood to prop these theaters up the government can't do that they're not not going to do that the hollywood system that has rung these things dry for generations 
they they need to step up and say we are going to offer assistance and we're not going to be you know like trying to like nickel and dime you for everything we're not just going to be giving you 40 year old movies to show on 10 screens across the country like we're going to actually provide you with some degree of subsidy and some degree of safety net so that when we do come roaring back because we will because we have every single blockbuster that didn't come out this year dropping in like a three-month period next year if we can oh my god next year is going to be insane for movies it's going to be bonkers right but it also might not not might not be because we might still be dealing with the an endemic version of this pandemic which could fuck everything up all over again right but the the reality is is that like movie theaters were already in such a tenuous place Mm -hmm. for the most part and they were just figuring it out i really feel like the last five to seven to ten years movie theaters were kind of coming up over that curve right where they were figuring out you know you could have premium luxury options imax really came back in force um some chains with their loyalty programs were finally starting to figure out how to do it right how to do subscriptions for monthly viewing limits and things like that amc stubs was a big program that really took off you had all these you know incentives and people were really going back into movies again because of people like christopher nolan right putting things out on imax and because of these big event movies like the mcu films which were getting people in in the seats all the time and then while they're there they're going well i might as well get a subscription and then they end up showing up for an independent release too because they you know if they could see eight movies that month they might as well try it out right yeah i mean theaters they were doing better but they weren't doing good like a lot right. of the problem with what's happening right now is these movies aren't being released, not because they couldn't release them and maybe they could make some, because Tenet made money at, in the box office here in America with the limited theaters that are open. The problem is studios don't want to invest in anything else but tentpoles. So they're sinking 150 to $200 million in these films. So they have to make $400 million domestic to make a profit. And then, or at least total worldwide or whatever. So you have these studios that are won't take risks on smaller budgets. They don't want small budget things. They want something they can make a billion dollars off of. And so what now they're losing money because they have no content that they can actually make money off of. So I th- hopefully this m- makes studios think like let's invest in smaller budget films that we can release in the theater even in circumstances like this so even if it makes 55 million dollars we only spent 36 million dollars on the movie get back to yeah but it's not going to happen though because all of those those like where have those smaller projects gone that the, the, the studios streaming. didn't just abandon them completely they went to streaming right well so those things are already happening but it's the just studio not happening did abandon theaters. them completely streaming is what's been picking them up like streaming is the the utopia for abandoned filmmakers whose studios are like no sorry i mean if you think about 10 15 years ago all sorts of movies were coming out movies like movies like blair witch and like smaller independent Mm. films that were making huge bonkers money though that's a thing of the past it really is well blair witch was literally 20 two years ago now so that is that is definitely a thing of the past i remember seeing that in theaters there's there's a lot of dynamics going on but we're gonna get around to it there's a lot of dynamics going on which is why i think we should do like a dedicated episode to to take a look at this problem from a a number of angles because you're right the commercial model for getting a film because even those things that i was talking about you know having uh imax viewings and having super premium luxury viewing experiences and blah 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 like those are all things that are made for big blockbuster films right which have always been a part of the fabric of hollywood but now increasingly to turn a profit they're really becoming what studios are depending on and and, it, and you can't make them if you don't have any money and you don't have anywhere to show them and nobody's going to see them because they could die from doing it so it's like but what the what the hell what the hell happens and this you know of course brings me back to dune which we were thinking was coming out in just a couple of months and now it's pushed back an entire year 
and it technically is just, less uh, than a year one now, of, but well, no, we're in we October, so less a year. That's true. It is a year. Yeah. So we, you know, there's uh, the wait is is long, and uh, I have no doubt that it will be worth it. But uh, speaking of long waits. We waited a long time for Prometheus to come out. We did. And the first glimpses of it that many of us got was uh, in the form of production design mm-hmm. that was released. It was seeing armatures from spaceships and things like that and mm-hmm. these leaked photos. Mm-hmm. And that brings me back to this idea that like the design of Prometheus has been some, something that I have never not been interested in. It's been something that I've, I've always found so fascinating. And uh, tonight for this episode, we're going to be not sort of, you know, going page by page by any means, but we're going to be talking a little bit in terms of a book that you can still pick up uh, in many places. I got mine on Amazon. Uh, I got like a used copy of it just about a month ago. How much did um, you pay for it's, it? Uh, not much. It was like 17, 18 oh, bucks, something nice. like that. That's nice. Yeah. I mean, it was used, but but it's in good, it's in good shape. It's in good shape. Um. <laughs> And it's Prometheus, so I'm not going to like pay top dot. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, it's The book is called Prometheus, The Art of the Film. It's by Mark Salisbury. It has a forward by Ridley Scott. It also has another section by by uh, Arthur Max in it, who, of course, is the lead production designer on it. Mm-hmm. And um, if you listen to our sister show, Shoulder of Orion, we've done a few episodes now back to back where we've talked about production design. We did one about conceptual artwork, I mean, we did, and we did one about production artwork for Blade Runner 2049. Um, well, we, we've done we've done one, and we're about to do another one of that. Um, and so we kind of thought this, this would be a good opportunity since we're already in this mindset to take a look at a document, you know, at a book that catalogs the production design of Prometheus, and look at it through that lens. But Jamie, what are your what are your thoughts at a sort of a high level about the design of Prometheus? Um, right up, right off the bat, um, I think it is the one of the best looking Ridley Scott films I've ever seen next to Alien, hands down. Um, it is absolutely gorgeous, sumptuous. Every detail, every nook and cranny, it is just like I could eat it. Like it's just beautiful. And in terms of uh, the continuity between Prometheus and Alien, it's seamless uh, in some ways. Of course, there's there's um, the whole ship and the technology in the ship, which is not seamless. And that's a whole other discussion, which we probably will get into on some level. But in terms of like planetary design, um, some of the design of the, of the, 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 um, the crawlers, what do you call those things that go on the, the planet? The, yeah. Like the landers or the, the crawlers. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, there's know, the bots. Yeah. Yeah. They're just gorgeous. I do remember seeing um, when, uh, um, one of the landing gears for um, the ship that Prometheus was leaked or dropped online, and it looked just like something out of or from the Nostromo. And that you saw the stripes, the continuity was so it was there. It was like, oh my god, we're back. This is alien. Here we are. It just it looks so good. It is just, and then when they go into the um that big pyramid like structure it's just so gorgeous 
and it's so well designed and well thought of. And then if you see some of the behind the scenes, whether it's the Furious Guides, and you see how much time and effort they went into building that. Like, I remember seeing stills of the caves thinking, oh, they just went to a cave. They built that cave. They built it. And it was just absolutely amazing. It is some of um, Arthur Max's best work. It is, again, some of Ridley Scott's best work. It is second to none um, in terms of uh, art design. It really, and I think one of the things I was noticing as I was flipping through the book, there's a reason why this art direction is so good. Why do you think it's so good? Why do you think it's just gorgeous and beautiful and feels like we're back in Alien in many ways? There's a, in my opinion, there's well, one specific reason. Well, I don't know if, if this is necessarily the reason, but I, for me, one of the reasons I think is because Giger comes up on like every other page is they went back to what he was doing. Absolutely. And to amplify it or yes. respond to it in some way. Yes. I, there was a return to his aesthetic. So they mined it for what makes it so beautiful and terrifying. And that's everywhere in every aspect of this film, whether it's the design of the engineers or the design of the, the pyramid or the juggernaut or the the space jockey um area it is all giger and that's what makes this film so great is they really return to that aesthetic and they realize that's what made the first film so so amazing in terms of its visual aesthetic and um we'll get into this in some other time and place in terms of a series on covenant one of the things i don't like about covenant is that it has no design aesthetic it's it's aesthetically very very boring um, because it's a complete abandonment of Giger's aesthetic and they go off into some other realm. So I really think what brings me back to watching Prometheus is the design. I disagree with you on the covenant point, as you might imagine, <laughs> but but that's I, I think you're absolutely right, though, that Prometheus really does go back to Giger quite a bit. And I'm surprised, actually, at how much of it was done in uh, contradiction to him, but very specifically. So there's a lot of moments in the book where Arthur Max or other people who work on the set will talk about how they went back and they looked at Giger's designs or they looked at the you know the Mobius space, space suits, for example, and they decided to do something different from it. Um, and to me, that whole the whole idea of even referencing them in the first place of talking about Giger's work means that you understand it enough to know to deviate at certain points from it, which is why I think the DNA of this film feels very... Gigeresque, even though he's not, you know, obviously wasn't a part of it um, in any real substantive way, other than visiting the set and hanging out a little bit. Which is a very interesting discussion as well, in terms of this Prometheus was sold in part saying, "Yes, Giger is back. He's on, like he's going to be a part of this film." When in right. fact that was never the case. But no. Although I do wonder what what if if anything he contributed outside of just the set visit and the conversations that there there might have I, I there wonder were some if, I mean, he, he did some sketching while he, he was there and stuff yeah mm -hmm. um I I don't I don't personally really know exactly what of that made its way into the film I'm sure somebody listening to this does so if you do know please you know fill us in on it um but yeah I, I think uh I'll, I'll save the covenant conversation for when we get to that series eventually. Um, but for Prometheus, I think that the, the design is, as you're saying, is just absolutely beautiful. And, and part of why I think it's so beautiful is because it references, you know, classical sculpture so much, mm -hmm. you know, the engineers themselves, uh, the, the, the arcology of the pyramid that they inhabit, all these different things, they feel very kind of timeless mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. And for something that is the primordial beginnings of what comes to be the alien saga, right? Uh, it's, it's, it feels very appropriate that what we're seeing is sort of the, the ancient history of it, right? It's, it's the sixth place in 2093, which is 22 years before, uh, alien. 
and uh, you know, so this is this is sort of this is where it all begins. But I that thought brings Alien you back was twenty seventy nine. Twenty one seventy nine was twenty one seventy nine. Okay. So yeah, so this was twenty one twenty three. No, twenty one twenty two okay. was Alien. Um. So uh, anyway, but my point being, I, I do want to take that actually as a leaping back point to something you brought up before about the design of the ship. So. This is, to me, the thing that has been kind of a sticking point because I hold in my head two truths about the production design of the technology in Prometheus. One is that it's awesome. And two is that it makes no fucking sense from a continuity perspective, and it never has to me. In the book, they talk quite a bit about why that's the case and how aware they are of it, right? So in designing the Prometheus and designing the lander and designing the escape pod and designing all of the technological aspects of this ship and, you know, the this lifeboat being sent out into space the production team very deliberately decided to do something that was non-nostromo they don't say this out loud but i think the reason for that is because the nostromo was kind of too iconic almost right what what they say in the book and in interviews and the furious gods etc is that they were doing that specifically to talk about the functional differences between these two ships right the nostromo was the nostromo the nostromo was towing ore and the Prometheus was a hyper, you know, incredibly beautiful research vessel that was being sent like a beacon out into deep space by people who had a ton of disposable income and needed to like, sub, you know, sustain a crew who was going to be performing pretty sophisticated scientific experiments. Whereas the Nostromo, of course, is basically a tow truck. Um, I get that. I understand the functional aspects of it. What I would have liked to have seen, and this is what I think they did really well with Blade Runner 2049, is that the the technology that we see in Alien, this analog cassette futurism technology, should inform, I think, more directly the technology in Prometheus, even though it's very different and there's a lot more money involved. To me, if you can keep things in universe, like so, for example, as we talked about in our 2049 episode um, about the, the production design of that film, we were talking about how they specifically were trying to envision a world where Steve Jobs had never existed, right? So there's no smartphones, there's no internet. There, th that kind of technology just kind of didn't happen. But instead of that, other technologies did that were very advanced, like spinners and, and you know anti-gravity traction devices and things like that, right? In Prometheus and in Alien, there are two totally different technological paradigms existing, one of which is in Alien, which is all about these CRT displays, mechanical keyboards, clicking, clacking, analog electronics that were, you know, uh, very tactile and very, they, they had a real sound and a heft to them. And they were, even for 1979, kind of out of out of place and out of time because it was sort of, it, it was something that looked like it was built in 1979 and would function in 1979 because indeed it did, right? In Prometheus, which happens, of course, before Alien, Everything about the interfaces in it is different. They're all these holographic things, these like very sophisticated things, all these like floating touchscreens, all of these things that I think Minority Report kind of ruined for everybody because it was so cool. All the interfaces of Minority Report were so cool that every movie since then has used them, right? Um, to me, it would have made, it would have been cooler had they envisioned a world where the cassette futurism was kind of the starting point, right? And then building off of that out of technologies that were implicit in Alien what it could look like in Prometheus. I would have liked to have seen that and probably would have had less of an issue with it, I think. Yeah, I would echo those statements. I think that um, the ship itself, the Prometheus, it is gorgeous, but it's also absolutely incorrect. I mean, it, it, it's not even in the same... It looks like everything we've seen in a sci-fi film with what you said, with the, 
the holographs and um, the interfaces and everything, and it doesn't fit. And you can't really make it fit saying, oh, this is a more expensive ship and whatever, and this is a different, this is a different mission. Yes, maybe they might have some tools in their, in their toolbox that are different, that is different than the Nostromo because the Nostromo is, is there for different reasons. However, you're going to equip a starship with the best of the best. And maybe they won't use everything, but they're going to need the best, um, I don't know, um, communication system. They're going to need the best tracking system. They're going to need all of those things. They might, they're not, they might not be a science vessel or a scientific vessel, but they're going to need access to many different things. So Prometheus should have been reflective of that. Um, but instead they were like, no, we're, we're doing what we want to do and we don't care. Um, and it just, the continuity really breaks there. Um, and I think that's sort of the suspension of disbelief that people talk about where they're like oh okay this is interesting but it's clearly not a prequel i mean even though it's supposed to be it doesn't even the suits they have these really form-fitting sexy suits and then of course which is a strike in strike contrast to alien which is those big bulky not that they needed to have big bulky spacesuits but again an alien they would have equipped those people with with the best suits available. They wouldn't just say, oh, we can't afford this here. Take these 20 year old suits. No, there's a financial, there's a financial interest at heart. And that's the thing we, we did discuss in the, in terms of the production design of 2049, the decisions that they make as artists when they are recreating or creating a world. And I don't understand the decisions that they made for Prometheus. I don't, it seemed like, they made the decision to make it very advanced and ahead of Alien because they wanted to, not because it fit. And you have to, I think that is the brilliance of 2049 where it feels like it's the future, but it feels connected to, fundamentally connected to the tech of the past. There's just that connection there, even though it's things are more streamlined and they're smoother and um, the, you can sort of, interface with them better and you have joy and you have all of these things it feels like the same world whereas with prometheus in terms of the ship itself and the technology it didn't feel like the same world at all um and that's a shortcoming that's um but taking taken on its own it works it really does if it's a self-contained yeah, film standalone yeah, yeah yeah um but i think what what matters to me what i love about prometheus aesthetically to me for me what really works is when they go into the pyramid, when they go into the derelict, all of that feels like, okay, um, they got, even though, even though the reality is though, too, it's a very um, pulled back aesthetic from what Geiger did. It wasn't that bony ribbed like structure. Um, It was smoother. It was cleaner. It was more mechanical and less biological. Um, and that was a uh, creative, which decision. was a choice. That was yeah. right. That's something that they talk about in the book quite a bit is that yeah. they went back to Giger and they stripped out some of the biological and emphasized the mechanical. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you you know, there's the whole conversation about the engineers, which to me are designed by Giger. They look like a version of the alien. I mean, they have that whole, their, their suit with the ribs and the, it looks like a version of the alien. It's gorgeous. Beautiful. I, I love the engineers. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And let's let's get to the engineers momentarily because I, I think that's a whole separate topic that that will be fun to get into. But I was just as you were talking, thinking the difference in some ways between twenty forty nine and Prometheus from in terms of a continuity of production aesthetic standpoint is that I think what I appreciate about twenty forty nine's production design is that for inspiration they looked to the original film and built out from there. Whereas for Prometheus, and this comes up a lot in the book, they looked for inspiration to the real world, not the world of the film, of the first film. They they looked actually in the world of, of 2012 or 2011 or 2010 when they were making it for what the Mars rover looked like or what, you know, spacesuits would look like if they were designed today, you know, for this kind of a, of a of an environment. Or they looked at luxury yachts, for example, that were around. They, they were looking at things that were actually in front of them in our actual continuity of our world which is not i don't think the continuity of, of alien i've never really even looked at, at the at the alien films as being directly connected to like our universe to me it's a sort of an imagined parallel universe that unfolds in the future but it's not like i'm sitting here today and my great 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 grandchildren will be sitting on a spaceship in, in an alien film um because like because the first film didn't do that the, the first alien did not look to the real world in any real meaningful way for inspiration it looked to the imagination of people like ron cobb and you know and it looked to the imagination of these incredible artists chris foss you know people who could dream up what fantasy sci-fi would look like based on fantasy sci-fi because none of these technologies existed yet right we had space we had space propulsion we had some basic capabilities of how to like navigate interstellar space yeah, at least mapped out but we didn't actually do very much of it right we, we hadn't seen we hadn't we hadn't industrialized it yet in, in any real way um and uh and in, you know, we weren't sending out you know things to mars and having them land there and then self-sufficiently live for 20 years we didn't have an international space station yet we didn't have all of the the sort of military industrial complex built up around space travel we were just sort of sending up rockets and hoping that they would land on the moon or land in orbit or blah 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 even in 1979. So my point being that I think if they had if they had based Prometheus's production design first and foremost in the production design of Alien and then extrapolated from that into what that world would produce for a really expensive vessel, I think it would have been better. Because I keep thinking about this this idea that like the Prometheus is a Tesla, right? And the Nostromo is like a long haul, you know, uh, like a Mack truck, right? They are they are both sophisticated machines in different ways. They are both like a Mack truck costs more than a Tesla does. Like they're, they're, they're incredible, but they're not like luxurious and super comfortable. And, you know, you don't want to necessarily go lay down in one mm -hmm. um, for an extended period of time. Whereas a Tesla, right, is like this incredible device that's really beautiful and really well made. But even those two different things, there are enough mimetic similarities between them that our brains immediately go, okay, these are both related to each other, right? They both have a similar, you sit in a seat and there's a steering wheel with an interface that if it doesn't have buttons on it, will have a touchscreen, but it's in, it's in the same place where the buttons would be and does the same functions of buttons. Um, you know, you can recline the seat, you can sit down, there's air conditioning. There, are, there For the most part, even though these two things are so different, like they're immediately identifiable as both being road going vehicles in our world. So that's a continuity issue that I've just sort of always had a little bit. That being said, though, I do think that the production design of the technology is just incredible. Something that I really love is that they used real materials quite a bit. So they used real metals for things. They used layers of different alloys for things. They built, like you said, real sets for much of the much of the thing. Even for things like the surface of the planet, you know, they consulted, um, uh, what, what do they call them? Oh my God, I'm actually on that page just by, by chance. Hang on. They consulted... A specialist in space geology who talked to us about what we might expect to find on a planet like that. So they actually built these twenty foot tall, sixteen to twenty foot tall volcanic pinnacles and put them on the field in Iceland, 
uh, and they were real for foreground shots, right? And that kind of like real attention to detail and real attention to fabricating real built things, I, I, I have always respected about Prometheus hugely. Yeah, uh, I agree. I think that um, despite some artistic ethical issues, maybe not ethical issues, but some artistic choices that they made, uh, it's still a masterpiece in terms of uh, the design and the care and the love that went into it. I mean, they really, it's just, it's beautiful. It's so beautiful to see. And uh, as you think of the moment of even, it's a lot of it is CG, but it's the the juggernaut falling onto the, and then rolling on the planet. How beautiful, just the, the atmosphere, the, those grays and blues. And they really were able to conjure the spirit of Alien um, while doing their own thing. And um, yeah, I think... It should have been probably nominated for an award for best art direction. It, it's it's that good. Was it not nominated at, at all? Nothing. You know, I don't think the Oscars could no. have been, but I'm not really. I don't think so. Um, what I'm I interested- agree. It should. Have, I mean, it's it's beautiful. The, the amount of, of attention to to production art is is astounding in this. Just just quickly before we move on from this, I, I want to point out the eco suits in the book, which are on page seventy five, which are never worn, but they're so beautiful and they're, and they're and to me much more in the spirit of Alien. And that they're a little bit awkward and bulky, uh, and and I, I think the suit design in general is so cool in this, and I, and I, I still think that David's visor in the beginning is just one of my favorite pieces yes. of Alien production, you know, art. And we got to see that in person at the display, at the Forty Years of Alien thing, and that was one of my highlights because uh, I, I just I've always thought that was so uh, iconic. You know, what's interesting though, uh, as we are talking about design and technology, one thing I think that we haven't mentioned yet, which to me was completely out of place was David looking at Shaw's dream. That technology mm-hmm. was so advanced. I know. And it seemed, I know it seemed like it belonged in a different movie. Um, yeah, it would have been different. It would have been better if we would have somehow the camera would have panned on her like they did Ripley and you see her and then you get the idea that you're going into her mind without us having to see David do that. Um, that, that piece that scene really brought me out of like, oh, what is so he can see into dreams? Um, why would he be able to monitor dreams? It's very interesting. Uh, it's also something that you see in Raised by Wolves a little bit, too, which is which is very, very strange. Um, but it's like the fir- it's like the first introduction to the technology yes. of the Prometheus that we have. Right. It's like so early, so early on. So like the entire rest of this thing for us is seen through the lens of this is a society who can peer in on people's dreams via this like incredibly sophisticated interface. Like that's so far removed from the Nostromo mm-hmm. that it just feels, it feels ludicrous to me. That being said, it's a really cool technology. I really love it. And in Raised by Wolves, I think it works because it's the simulation of mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But in the, in the world of Prometheus, I don't think it makes very much sense. Um, I also think it could have been from a filmmaking standpoint, more interesting to have, to show him doing that and to not, make it explicit what he's actually doing but just to have him kind of meditating and touching her forehead or mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. i think and, and that, that would have been something that we'd been talking about forever we'd have been like what was he doing in the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. like what was what was up with that mm-hmm. right but instead it's very much kind of show and tell at the same time and, yeah and, it's, and kind of kills that moment for me a and bit. i think the whole dream sequence itself was very overly expositional where his father was yeah, her father's like, a hallmark movie yeah i was like oh that's what they choose to believe you know and then later <laughs> on she says it too um 
So I think it was yeah. just a bit heavy-handed, but it, it, the uh, technology is very interesting. Again, one of those artistic choices they made in terms of production design and technology design that just didn't really work. It didn't really fit. Yeah. Um, yeah. But again, I want to do the engineers. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. So no, you, so, you want to okay. finish your point? I was just going to say I think in the end, I think eighty-five percent of the production design is amazing even the stuff that doesn't well i'd say it's all amazing even the stuff that doesn't really work for me is amazing it just doesn't belong but i think really again it's just mm-hmm. it's some of the best of the best but a hundred percent hundred percent agree with you on that. we can move on to the engineers now well i so the engineers are have come up quite a bit in our conversations because they scare us both quite a lot <laughs> that's something that like mm-hmm. I, I find them very very threatening me very too frightening um, and very conceptually interesting. And I am not, and I have never been one of those people who was pissed off about the actual origin of, you know, the fact that, that what we thought was, uh, a, you know, a head was actually a mask with a head inside of it. I've, I've always thought that was a really cool angle. And I've, I've appreciated that they went that audaciously in that direction for this movie. Um, and, uh, and I'm glad that the payoff was that we got the engineers added to our canon, which are just an amazing, amazing idea i think and an idea that's really got a lot of of longevity um you've mentioned on past episodes that the engineers look like elvis to you mm-hmm. I haven't you said that yeah um i don't know i don't know if you remember that in the book or not but they but they actually used him as a reference they did for, yes. for elvis. yeah and they used michael uh, i had never David. noticed until you said it yeah yeah and the statue of liberty yeah those are the three yeah right? where it has those classic roman features Right, right. And so so when they were designing the engineers, which in the script, which we covered a couple of episodes ago, you know, it goes into some detail about how they are Grecian and they look very sort of, uh, you know, ancient and, and like perfect sort of this is like this is the ideal man to like a Renaissance artist. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so in, to do that, they went to to Florence and they actually spent time with, you know, Michelangelo's sculptures and Da Vinci sculptures. And they got to know the or paintings rather. Um, and they got to know the uh, the design aesthetic quite a bit and the proportions and the ways that they you know portrayed faces in three dimensions um and then they also like we were saying they used photographic studies and they overlaid you know photos of elvis and photos of such liberty uh on top of, of you know for example david and um and they came up with this really iconic look that is not a tr- I'm, I'm maybe to you it is but to me it's not like attractive like i feel like they went for this kind of hyper perfect face, like from an artistic standpoint, and they wound up with something kind of grotesque, something where like the 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 definition between the forehead and the nose is so minimal that it's sort of shocking, you know, or like the face is so severe that it goes from being beautiful and angular into being something a little a little in inhuman, I guess. It pushes these 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 notions of symmetry and and classicism in directions that kind of make them a little bit freaky. And I I love how they accomplish that just from a facial standpoint. Yeah. um, I would say the concept designs are beautiful, but I think um, the execution of them, they are terrifying. And there's something about them that's very, it's a little Cro-Magnon at the same time. It is very Grecian. Um, They have just this strange quality to their face and their face seems sort of little small compared to their stature. They're like supposed to be like, nine feet tall um they're both beautiful designs and terrifying designs like to be honest with you like in in prometheus seeing that engineer run after shaw was really scary like to me that was scary like what is this guy gonna do to her you know um there are these big stoic things that don't really speak our language they don't really speak at all um i i just think that they are 
if Prometheus works at all, it's in developing an iconically scary monster of its own, which is the engineer. Um, and then, well, sort of, we don't ever see him again in Covenant, but um, I, I really think it's just beautiful. And if you look at the, the, the pressure suits that it's wearing, it looks like. So if you see, uh, there's a book called Giger's Alien, and I have like the softback version of it. And in the book, you see the life cycle of the alien. And um, in one frame, you see the face hugger jumping onto looks like a masked astronaut or whatever. And then in the other scene, the mask is off and the, the, the body of the, the man or person who has a face hugger on them looks very much like an engineer. Uh, the ribs, everything, but they also it also really um, reflects the alien architecture as well. So I really think when they they did their best homework for the engineer in terms of um, connecting it to the world that Giger created for uh, the universe of Alien and the Xenomorph and the life cycle, but changing it enough to adapt it to this humanoid figure while it feeling natural but also terrifying at the same time. Uh, I can't go on enough about how amazing those engineers are. Now, in terms of them being the guy in the suit, in my opinion, there's so much wrong going on in Prometheus. That's just sort of the cherry on top. Like, it, the film loses me on so many levels that by the time it's like, okay, yeah, I, I don't want to believe that it's an engineer in that suit in the original, but... The film lost me before that, so it kind of doesn't matter. But it's it's a dichotomy because I love the engineer design. So in some ways it works for me too. Um, hopefully they don't ever touch it again, so we will, we don't know. Maybe in Alien it's some type of engineer that's grown into the chair that's supposed to um, drive that derelict specifically so it doesn't ever leave the chair or whatever. Um, because... The arm proportions look different. And if you see some of the, the designs for the engineer, the arms are much, much longer. Then they, they look they don't look right. The arms look longer. But the arms are longer so that it would look right in that chair. Because if you look in that chair, in the original, that space jockey has very, very long arms to grab onto the controls of the chair. So they had to sort of do some jumping around to fit into that hoop. Um, but the product from that is iconic an iconic monster mm -hmm. yeah I, I think if you separate it from the movie and look at it just from a canon standpoint th that's kind of what i do with it because because i'm also sort of out of the movie by, by that point mm -hmm. too so mm -hmm. i'm not really like thrilled by the idea in the context of the film it's happening in but i'm thrilled by the idea in the context of the continuity with the other movies i i, I just think it's i just think it's fascinating and i love that like it fires up my imagination for other things too and i also think you know in covenant we see other types of engineers we see other types of you know engineers in the um, in that flashback sequence, we, we, we see glimpses of the fact that engineers might be more than one race or species or that they're also bioengineers themselves. And so they might have bioengineered for different purposes, different people or different, you know, members of their species, et cetera. So who, who knows why they're so small compared to the, you know, the space jockey. Um, and, uh, and, and also, like, I, I, I'm sitting here making a lot of excuses for them because I kind of want to just make it work. In reality, maybe they just fucked that up. You know, it's one of those things that we're not going to ever know about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but well, I do know that what they the space... To make. They, 
in their minds, they did what they wanted to do. They made the choices aesthetically right. that they decided they, they were going to make and they, they were happy with it. And um, everyone yeah. has to live with that. And I think they were trying their best to bridge the world because some of the this discussion we're having about the art direction for the film also goes back to how they were selling the film, how Damon Lindelof was selling the film. Is this an alien film? Well, I don't know. Is it? Um, it trades in the same stock as Alien. Just that bullshit. Like, come on, are you think are we? We're Alien fans. We're not stupid. Not to say that other fans of other genres are not at all. Um, but clearly, it was an Alien film that was in the same right. world. Um, but they were doing the same thing with the aesthetic design, with the with the art direction. Oh, it's sort of Alien, but it isn't. Like, and I think that was sort of the danger too. Like, make up your minds here. Is it an alien film or is it? Oh, it's sort of, yeah, but it doesn't have anything to do with alien, except for at the end when the engineer gets face hugged and the xenomorph pops out. Then it's alien. Um, so I think right. the design really reflects that and ambiguousness of what the film is, for better or for worse. Yeah. Um, I, 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 before we move on from this, I, I do want to just go back to the exosuit for a second, because I've always really loved that design element also. And what I did, I didn't know until reading the book is that that was kind of a last minute addition to it. Basically they were, they were very far along in the, in the, um, I don't, probably not in the filming process, but at least in the pre-production and fabrication process for all this stuff. And the concept artists were completely exhausted and nobody wanted to work on it. Um, and, uh, and so Stephen Messing, who, uh, was one of the designers working with Arthur Max, et cetera, went back to Giger's work, as you were mentioning. I know the exact panel you're talking about from Giger's Alien, by the way, with the guy getting face-hugged. It, it does look so much like that. Um, and, uh, and then they took inspiration from samurai outfits and from uh, Russian cosmonauts. And, uh, but it's funny, because they say that, like there's this whole huge paragraph here about all of these different signs of sources of inspiration. But to me, it, it really just ultimately looks like it's just like an alien costume, totally. essentially, totally. with some modifications to it. Um, but I'm I'm okay with that because I kind of love it. And it just drives home this idea that the alien is the perfect organism, right? And so, mm -hmm. like, the, the people who were designing it, if that's indeed what they were up to, you know, would have engineered something that uh, had these, you know, they would have built something for themselves that was modeled after this thing that, you know, we create in our own image, right? And that's why the engineers look sort of human. But they choose to wear the exoskeletal uh, apparatus of the of the creature, and um, I, yeah, so from a from an aesthetic standpoint, I think it works very well. I think it's just like a badass suit. I think it looks really cool, and it fits so seamlessly into the space jockey aspect because that's what the space jockey looks like. It's a petrified version of that same thing. Well, and if you look um, at the if you look at the suit on the engineer in the film, it looks like it's almost grafted to its body. There's a part of it where it right. looks like it's in his skin, so it's some type of biological right. suit. It's very interesting. Yeah, and, and they mentioned that too. The, the idea was basically that it could conform to the body, like just in, in a, so that there's like no air between the two things. So just, it was something you, you would put on and it would kind of just morph itself to your body shape. And speaking of body shape, something else that I think is so fascinating is that even just the physicality of the engineers is not supposed to be like a bodybuilder physical, like even though they're so, they're so mammothly strong, um, they, they took inspiration from Renaissance artists mm -hmm. and the ways that they portrayed muscularity so you look at for example the statue of david um that is a that's a physique that couldn't exist the way it exists without some sort of anabolic anabolic steroid like there's just they be especially with like the trapezius muscles and the deltoid muscles and all of these things that really need to have some sort of steroid amplification to grow to significant levels and that's why bodybuilders big, look the booties. Way they do. <laughs> big, big <laughs> booties uh they do have big booties 
uh, those things are, uh, you know, they're inhuman, ba- basically, right? Like, I mean, like when you supplement with steroids, you're basically introducing something into your system that your system can't produce enough of as it's as itself, right? So there's something kind of inhuman about it, which which I really appreciate for the physiques that they went with. They went with what Renaissance artists were imagining perfect physiques could look like, but none of them had ever seen it before because they didn't have physiques like that back then because weight training was like, you know, lifting a bunch of bags of shit and walking around it. Like people weren't, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger in, in 1976. Anyway, uh, we can move on from, from that, but the engineers, I, I, I agree are just absolutely just incredible. Um, do you want to hit up the pyramid next and kind of just touch on that? Yeah. Um, one thing though, uh, and so it being related to the engineers, you and I were, were able to go to the USC exhibit last year and they had yeah. a statue of an engineer and it was nine feet tall, probably if it seemed. No, taller. that thing, that thing was like, that was like, I, to, to me, that was like barely Maybe six seven and a half feet, feet tall. You think it was not that big. Yeah. It was not that big. Well, uh, really? I feel like it was so tall, but who knows? Well, there's pictures of us next to it. You and I are both well over six feet. So I feel like <laughs> it's easy to tell, you know, we can, we can gauge, you know, we're, we're looking down on it is what I'm trying to say. Jamie and I are both short. So that's a joke. <laughs> um, well, although um, I'm shorter than he is. Yes, you are. I'm five nine. Um, I'm, I have a tight for me. <laughs> a towering, a towering, towering five I think the average is five ten. Thank you really? very much. Yeah. I don't know why I'm saying that. Cause that makes me even shorter. I'm five seven, <laughs> okay. but you know what? I'm a, I'm a proud five seven. I hold my short head tall, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's move on. What the hell were we going to talk about? Oh, the pyramid. <laughs> the pyramid. That's right. So yeah, so the pyramid, we don't, we don't have to go super far into it because I actually don't think it's that interesting, but the, the idea basically here is this revisiting what Giger was working on, Although they don't mention this in the book, uh, when he was working on Hodorowski's Dune, because he was designing buildings that looked very much like the pyramid that we ended up getting. Um, and I don't remember that in the book. Maybe they do mention it at some point. But basically, they were taking Giger sketches and then trying to, um, like we were saying earlier, take some of the bio out and add more of the mech to it. Um, and so that's how we end up with this sort of symmetrical dome pyramid thing. Um, they took a lot of inspiration from arcology, which I think is really fascinating. Arcology, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is the blending of architecture and ecology. And um, there are some places in the world that have really amazing examples of this. One of them is mentioned in the book, which I can't, I'm not going to be able to flip around and find right now, but I believe it's called Arcosanti. And it's in Phoenix. It's a slightly north, I think, of Phoenix, Arizona. And it's basically a commune compound designed by this one Italian-American sculptor whose name I can't think of right now. And the whole idea was it was this whole town that was designed to be in perfect harmony with the natural environment around it and would basically just be these buildings that allowed in a certain amount of light and a certain amount of darkness and had natural ways of, uh, of collecting water condensate and of circulating air so that it would basically be a self-sustaining energy environment. And so that's why uh, when they took inspiration in building the pyramid for that, Arthur Max points out that they the idea was they could take their helmets off once they were inside of it because it was so archaeologically sound as a structure. It was something that was just so conducive to life. And it makes sense because it was built by these creatures who were the bringers of life throughout the universe. Yeah, yeah. Although thematically that was a problem. Um, just because it's safe to breathe doesn't mean it's safe to breathe. Um, right. I do think that the pyramid is interesting. I do love the aesthetic of the pyramid. I, I have, I think I, I have questions like, why is it shaped like a skull? For what reason? Why would they do that? Why would they build a pyramid that looks like, it's not really even a pyramid. It sort of looks like a pyramid. It's more of like this dome structure with a skull on top. Um, I think it's beautiful. And I love that they went back to Giger's designs for it. And the whole interior of everything. I mean, it's just, 
it's scary and it's dark and it's the unknown and it really um, um, echoes the those passageways in Alien where they're sort of walking around and um, it doesn't have the same sign of kind of quiet that Alien had in it that really um, was conducive to um, terror or sort of that foreboding that foreboding horror that was coming. Um, but I do think that the design of it is just, again, amazing. And uh, the, the work and the love that they went into to create it, um, the interiors, and of course it's digital on the exterior, but it's really, it's great. Again, it's one of those things where they're reverting back to earlier designs. And I think even with the 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 suits that they're wearing and the, they have the little, their name patch on their, inside their helmet their forehead yeah their forehead um that's a yeah. ron cobb design uh, that they brought yeah. back uh, you know in a di- slightly different manner but so all of these things that were, were that were that is jumping out at us that is connected we're connecting with are designs that they had since alien that they're reusing again so i think that's, that's true there's a lot of that yeah and that's what really grounds prometheus i think and that's what part of the reason why it speaks to us in a way that we can't understand is because it feels like it's always been here because it has, because it was designed 40 years ago. Um, and so elements of it have, has always been present and they just, it was a reprisal of that. Um, again, I don't think Kevin had it much of that. And I think that's sort of the disconnect between the aesthetic, but really to me, what draws me in about Prometheus and the pyramid and the interior of the pyramid, the pyramid is that is that reflection is that echo of of something that feels like it's been around forever it feels like a world we're familiar with because we are familiar with it mm-hmm. yeah i i agree with you you know there, there's a number of things in the book that are brought up as being based on unused concepts especially from alien one of which is the bridge of the prometheus was a sketch by ron cobb it's based on a sketch by ron cobb mm-hmm. that was never used in the in the first film and they brought it back for this too which is funny though because it still doesn't work for me because of the of this the 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 aesthetic distance between this film and, and that film but there are echoes of the first film in it throughout like the you know the pyramid like the space suit the suit like other things that i think kind of help ground it a little bit um in the interest of time i want to move us along if that's okay okay yeah well one thing to... about i'll just i'll just mention about yeah go yeah. the bridge um what i think that the problem is is with that bridge in Prometheus, yes, it might have been designed by Ron Cobb, but obviously in, in Alien, they are like, we need a, a more industrialized version of this bridge. We need something simpler. We need something more industrial. We need something that makes more physical sense. But instead, in Prometheus, they used the one, they used the design that was more futuristic, that was more ahead of its time. So thematically, the aesthetic, the thematic aesthetic was off because it didn't really fit. So you couldn't really yeah. even tell it was designed by Ryan Cobb because it was so far removed from the design they actually went for in the original. Moving on. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's, that's a good point. Um, we can touch on the creatures a little bit. That's cool. Okay. Uh, f- for me, a, a, a thing that I've always just had such an issue with in the film is Fifield because it's just it's such a squandered opportunity, I think. Um, in the book, they show Carlos Suante's artwork for it, which is just incredible. And Carlos Suante... We have to get him on the show at some point because he comes up all the time. He's one of my favorite alien concept artists. Um, and he has done incredible work. His work on Covenant also is just absolutely breathtakingly scary mm-hmm. and beautiful. 
um, but on Prometheus as well, he made Fifield look the way that Fifield would, like the way that that character should have looked, which is an absolute abomination that is also very distinctly human and very distinctly never coming back to being a human again. Mm-hmm. Something caught in the middle of this horrible transition process who's been touched by... Something that's so cool about the Black Goo to me is that it's it's like, you know, the engineers exist to seed life and to take it away, right? They they have these mechanisms of giving birth and these mechanisms of forcing death. And I think that's really powerful. And the Black Goo... But of course that gets lost because the Black Goo is used for like 30 million different things that don't seem to go together at all. But that's the basic concept behind it that they talk about in the book too and in the script. And uh, the way that it interacts with Fifield in the movie to me is just like, it's just making an excuse to have like a bad guy come and, you know, throw things into, into disarray. Whereas I think in the, uh, in the production artwork and in the concept artwork that Carlos did, it's really, really frightening because it's sort of cute almost. Like he looks like, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to find the page that this is on. Yeah. yeah here we go. It, like he looks almost like, uh, like pumpkin head a little yeah. bit yeah. mixed with like a guppy mixed with a burn victim it's very it's very very uh frightening and very recognizably human without being kind of glommed on in the final movie of course we got this the terrible prosthetic shit that that sean harris wears that um i, I just think looks like it looks like bad uh day of the or, or you know dawn of the dead makeup or something mm-hmm. um there's a digital version of it as well which is somewhat better that was put out when the dvd came out uh but uh, i i really wish that we had seen this really pitiful and frightening thing that Carlos has, was designing. I think it's so cool. I would agree. I think that that, that whole sequence and uh, wh- whatever Fifield's becoming, whatever he's being transmuted into, I don't know, trans transformed into um, it's, I, we really don't know. I, of course he ends up back at the ship. You don't really know why he ends up back at the ship. And he's sort of in pieces, but he's not in pieces, and he does that rise up thing, which I, um, I, uh, the design, uh, one of the designs for Fifield was to have an elongated head. Um, I really would have preferred him to have really had that xenomorph architecture a little bit more, as opposed to this sort of whatever it was back at the ship killing humans for no reason, really. Like, what's it doing? Like, I don't. Why is it? How did it find its way all the way back to the ship? And why would it want to go back there? For what reason? Um, I, I didn't know why. And so it didn't really work for me, um, except for it, it, it could have been a really great moment of like the reveal of like a version of the Xenomorph, but it didn't. Um, I do love Quante's earlier designs for him. Um, and I know they went back and forth really late in the game too. And they did that digital version. In fact, they released that trailer with the digital version. And then when the movie yeah, came out, right. it wasn't yeah. that one, which I thought was strange. The digital version to me was too animated and it seemed a little bit funny, um, but it was very grotesque for sure. Um, but yeah, I don't, that's an, that's a design I have a problem with. <laughs> just, just looking at the pictures from the set, it, it really is so, because when it's not even like lit properly, when it's just like him walking around, it really looks like shit. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a squandered opportunity, and we know that for a fact because of because of the book and because the art that's in here. Well, and with the xenomorph, there's always there's there's um, their life cycle. They, they have impetus. They have they want to um, preserve their their lives. They want to procreate. They want to um, maintain. They want to live. They want to survive. That's why, you know, that's some of the egg morphing that happens on the Nostromo that we don't see in the theatrical cut. 
what it's doing is it's it's trying to thrive. It's trying it's trying to make a nest for itself. There's reasons behind it, and it makes sense to us. Um, there's a reason why it's hiding in the in the shadows, in the vents, and all of these things. It's it's nesting. Whereas with Fifield, and maybe the the black goo or whatever is just going is chaos in his body, so it doesn't really have it doesn't have a purpose. It's just chaos in his body and whatever and whatever part of him that's left brought him to the ship so i but i i feel like in order for me to believe something i need to understand it to some degree and i don't understand anything that was going on with him so that's why i didn't believe it yeah yeah uh, i i would agree with you on that um i uh you know one of one of my favorite po moments to date was when i think i talked about this on our five-year episode was when uh, was when it was it was when it was you me and Ryan and we were reading listener suggestions and somebody mentioned the hammerpeed and it became this kind of running joke throughout the whole the whole entire rest of the episode that the hammerpeed was just like a dick <laughs> and, and so like, <laughs> we were laughing so hard for the entire rest of the show and the reason why that was a joke of course is because the hammerpeed is just a dick with a mouth on it and I've never <laughs> I've never been interested in that design at all I think it's amazing actually I love that hammerpeed I think it's gorgeous oh yeah yeah you would love that hammerpeed. <laughs> No, but like it's like a, it's like a cobra, <laughs> but it's not a full cobra. Like when it's opened like that, I think it's beautiful. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool when it spreads out its little frill. Yeah, and, you know when the when the foreskin goes down and opens its mouth up. It's just it. It feels to me something about it. I think is the flesh tones of it because like mm-hmm. whereas the, the neomorph, for example, is something where when I saw glimpses of it in the trailers for Covenant, I was like, ah, oh, this is gonna look like shit. It's gonna look like a hammer again. I like how the neomorph actually looks like super super pale and not humanoid in its complexion the hammerpeed i think part of what distracts me about it is that the flesh tone is like a white guy's dick flesh tone it looks like just like it looks like human skin and i think it looks um a little bit funny to me for that for that reason and not very threatening like i, I can't like I, I you know what, what part of the what's so beautiful about giger's alien design is that when you look at it, you are drawn into a web of mysteries to untangle. There are so many things going on about it that are contradictory and fascinating and beautiful and strange. And it's that's why we never get tired of... I mean, look, how much Hammerpeed fan art is there out there? <laughs> Two? I mean, you know? Whereas Xenomorph fan art, is, it's, every single day around the world, there's 10,000 people drawing a Xenomorph mm-hmm. at any given moment. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I, at least, I'm one of them, you know, half the time. I, I fucking adore the Xenomorph. And I think part of it is just because... There is, um, there there are all of these references to things in the xenomorphs design. It, it it's more than just phallic, mm-hmm. right? It's more than just sort of mysterious and threatening. It's elegant and strange, and and it's it might be a machine, but it's not. And why are there vents and tubes? Like, what are they connecting to? Like, how is it holding itself up? Why is it moving like a dancer, even though it's so enormous? What's its tail doing? Mm-hmm. With the hammerpede, part of what I don't like about it is that it's just it just feels like a monster of the week kind of a design from the X-Files or something but even like less interesting than that and it just it just that design has never worked for me at all and the same thing for the trilobite honestly uh, like the trilobite is, is one of these designs where and I think it's because again it's just it, part of it maybe because it's human flesh tone again like you know white guy human flesh tone um, it was clearly it just a big face guy. hugger too that's what it was. Yeah, it's just a big face hugger that's got a bunch more arms on it, and it just and it's it's like why squander the opportunity to induce some more mystery into it? Like why like why does it have to just kind of be, like I mean, because let's be clear, like it's or let's be honest, it, th- those are both just worst. The the hammerpeed is just a crappy chestburster, right? Mm-hmm. From mm-hmm. a design standpoint, mm-hmm. 
And the trilobite is just a crappy face auger. Like they're just worse versions of those designs. And I think um, it would have been, uh, again, really, really interesting to have taken those designs further and to make them more mysterious again. But well, I think you're opinion. hitting on a very, um, specific, very important note or point, which is you can't beat Giger. You can't. And he came up with really iconic designs for the life cycle of the alien. And so what they did is they tried to pull back from that and give us a version of it before it is the version that we'd seen. And they just don't hold up. And part of it is because they're digital, except for the hammer P that was practical for the most part. Um, the trilobite wasn't. Uh, there was a full-scale one built, and I think there's a couple of moments that you see it. But largely, it was digital. Um, and they're not as scary. I think what's scary about the design in Alien and, and the, the traditional facehugger and the chestburster is that they're smaller. They're on your face. They're right here. They're just, they're more, they're more, tenable is that the right word they're they're yeah, they make them more uh, physical right yeah like... whereas in prometheus they made him into these huge enormous monsters um which are, are less believable not to say that there aren't i mean we live in a world where there's enormous animals in the sea and on land or whatever um but they didn't i think it's hard to go up against giger and they tried and i think in one way they they achieved it in terms of the engineer, which we've discussed, but in terms of like the, the creatures that they were developing that were sort of tied to alien, they just weren't successful. And I mean, we'll probably, we can move on to the, the Deacon at the end, which I think was just ridiculous. It looked, I remember when I saw it, it looked like somebody in leotard, someone in a blue leotard and the way it came out of the, the engineer and, like fully formed, it was. I'm sorry, it's like there's no way that that big thing was inside that engineer. There's no way, um, and it was already fully formed. It just didn't make any aesthetic sense to me. And it was blue. Who knows why it was blue? Um, and I just really think those designs really they weren't scary. They were just more like oh weird, interesting. But they they weren't scary. They weren't interesting. They, well, I just said that they were interesting. Um, <laughs> they weren't interesting <laughs> enough, I should say. The, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think um, part of it is that with Alien, part of why the designs were so frightening for it was because they were kind of incomprehensible. Like, uh, like I was saying about the Xenomorph itself, like there's a lot going on and it's kind of hard to figure out what you're looking at. But with the other creatures as well, there's a degree of incomprehensibility to them the first 20 times you see them where you're kind of like, how did like, what, what is this thing? Like, I, I haven't really gotten a good clear shot of it yet. I've seen glimpses of it. I don't really know how it functions. Um, and as you learn more about it and as Ash studies the face hugger and things like that too, there are just more kind of weirdnesses that are uncovered about it. Mm -hmm. Like there's more strange mysteries coming out. And so by the end of the film, although you kind of have a grasp to some degree on what these physical specimens are, they're still very strange and very mysterious Whereas the hammerpeed and the and the deacon and the trilobite to me, there there's a there's two layers of issues going on. One of which is that we already have a vocabulary to know what they're doing because mm -hmm. we already have seen the life cycles mm -hmm. of these things and we know what the, what the deal is, right? Um, but then on top, so their their function is very clear. But also in addition to that, they are from a visual standpoint like what you see is what you get. I mean, it's, it's a what you see is what you get model, right? Like like all of these things, you know exactly what they are the second you see them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that Alien is much scarier when you don't know what you're looking at and when you can't quite figure it out. 
Um, and again, I think that's why the Neomorphin Covenant has become such a beloved, you know, uh, addition to the creature design language of, of these films is because I think that the Neomorph is a very frightening and strange yes. animal. And it still remains that. I'm still very freaked out by those things. Well, in contrast um, to Prometheus, I think the creature design for Covenant far above and beyond Prometheus. Those things that we see in in David's lab and the creatures that we end up seeing sort of inhabiting or in the spores or whatever, chest bursting or back bursting, they're really terrifying. They really, they're a really good bridge. Whereas the ones in Prometheus, the design just isn't there, but the designs in Covenant, like those things were frightening. That, that um, version of the face hugger with all of those legs. Oh my God, it's terrifying. Whereas in Prometheus, they weren't. And, and I think, and I, I, I don't know if you saw on this thread that I, I think Maj was the one who started it um, on Building Better Worlds, but I, I, I wrote a pretty lengthy response about my sort of defense of the Covenant protomorph design, um, where for me, like that is actually a very frightening creature in and of itself, mm-hmm. aside from the xenomorph, because I think it's a really, like the the uh, visual language that it uses is really self-contained mm-hmm. and really works within the context of itself. It's another weird thing to look at that is not identifiably a xenomorph because it has all these human features and all these like strange musculatures. And the more you look at it, the more freaky it kind of becomes. Mm-hmm. The way it moves is very frightening. The way it skitters on all fours and things like that. Um, so that's, yeah, we'll save that for, for Covenant. Um, but yeah, that's, that's I, from, a, I, I agree with you for the most part that from a design perspective, Prometheus is miles above Covenant. I think Covenant kind of gets by on just sort of reusing things from Prometheus to some degree from a visual standpoint and not in necessarily as interesting of a way and in a way that kind of takes them for granted a little bit. But the creatures I think in Covenant are much better. Um, that being said though, I, I, you know, I think the Deacon, uh, I mean, when I saw that in theaters, I was happy about it. I, I, I felt like, uh, it kind of landed for me, the ending of the film, the first time I saw it, um, which was good because the rest of the movie really hadn't. And then I was kind of like, okay, like we're kind of, you know, we're back on terra firma now. Of course, as the years have gone by, I've, I've, I've liked it less and less. And, and to me, the Deacon feels like this just bizarrely abandoned concept that, of course, in the comics. And do you know, do you know what the fate of the Deacon is in the comics? I don't remember. It becomes a mountain. I'm not even kidding. It just becomes a mountain. That, that that's that's how that, that's how it that's how it ends up. It's 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 very 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 strange. And it's like one panel of a comic. Anyway, the Deacon is just a bizarre bizarre creature that I think has some interesting features to it. I really like the retractable jaw. You know, I like how it feels. Uh, I don't like it that much. Actually, I'm not going to defend it that much. I, I think the Deacon is kind of a half. <laughs> well, it's kind of a half. The problem design, so much cool, isn't you know? so much the design of it. The problem is it's the end. Ah, like it's like a Jurassic World. Like exactly, like we're gonna make this creature ending, scream, yeah. and that's the last thing you see. Like it just felt like like yeah. like a cheap trick. It just felt like um, it felt like it was an t- entirely different movie. It didn't like any mystery. It just was like, yeah, it's like the Tyrannosaurus Rex at the end of Jurassic Park. Roaring yeah, all at the it needed was mountain. a banner falling in yeah. front of it. <laughs> like, I just, yeah. it just completely lost me. I thought I, I was laughing. I thought it was that bad, but I don't think the design yeah. is bad itself. I mean, I think that I, the blue was weird. It does look like a leotard, but it's not. It's the placement of it. It's it's that's all I see of it. Whereas with Alien and Covenant and all of the other films, you're given time to really explore these designs. Even the the engineer, you're really giving time given time to drink in that design. Whereas with Prometheus, you see that deacon at the end, it's blue, it's weird, it's fully formed, it's enormous, it plopped out of this 
engineer and you see it for a split second and it's over. So it doesn't make enough sense. And then, then the film, the credits roll. So I think it, the placement of it uh, does a disservice to it. But again, if you look at the, I, I, I agree. It make, it gives, and that's of course, as we know from our script episode, that was all, all Damon Lindelof adding that at the end with exclamation marks and, and points and things. You know, Sexually driving home. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of his poorer uh, additions to it. But if you look in the book, at the designs for the Deacon, uh, again, like many other things, I think they're a lot more interesting. They mm-hmm. used foals, like newborn deer, as inspiration for it. They gave it the same kind of trilobite, you know, white dick flesh tone, mm-hmm. for, which at least from a continuity perspective makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think it looks smaller and more threatening. And then you look at the way that the design iterated over time and you end up with something that's sort of just like a half-assed xenomorph. Um, that being said, though, there are some things in here that are very close to what the neomorph looks like, and and that I think as a as a design direction is sort of a fascinating connection between the two films. Um, that being said, unless you have anything else to touch on, I think we can we can wrap with that. There's obviously a lot more to cover, and as we go through the series, we will be returning to this topic quite a bit because, the, as we've said many times, the production design of Prometheus is one of the best elements of it, and something I love to talk about. Yeah, for sure. But. Um, yeah, I don't have anything else personally that I want to make sure we touch on in this episode. Yeah, I think that we've covered it really. And yeah, like, you know, we'll, we will come back to it. And um, uh, the, but uh, before we end this episode, the we this con- this discussion will continue in our group, Building Better Worlds. Check it out there. We'll have a post talking about the design, um, what touches you about the design, what inspires you, um, if you love it, if you don't, and those reasons. So check us out on Building Better Worlds, and we'll see, you'll see a post there related to this episode, and we'll talk about it more. I, t- I typically tend to be there the most on social media than Patrick. Patrick, I'm sure, will chime in. Um, lastly, we, we should say we have a program called Patreon, and we are always looking for new subscribers You can you, or, or patrons. You can support us for 2 bucks a month. You get another show called Frame Rate, which is where we discuss films or we review films that we love we also have a show called chit show which we're overdue to release an episode of yeah uh, we're like three months overdue with that overdue. but you know what it's gonna be it's gonna be so shitty and sh- and so it good by the time we come around to it it's gonna be worth the wait it will be it will be so um wait uh wait uh perfectorganism.com forward slash support and sign up for patreon two bucks a month uh all of your money will go to operating costs we're looking at planning and hopefully a a mini live event maybe next year in August on the East Coast. Um, if we can. If we can, we will. We can. We'll be able to. That was supposed to happen like six months ago. I know. This is, what a weird year this has been. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. So. That's that's the plan is that we are going to get this live event as soon as we can. And, and, and we will do an East Coast one. I'd love to go back out to the West Coast, do one out there again. Um, and we've even talked with friends in the UK and in Europe uh, about doing stuff over there, too, at some point. And all of every single dime that we get through Patreon goes directly to supporting those things, to supporting things like our giveaways, to supporting things like uh, our commissioning of original artwork for audio dramas, to or, all of these things that we try to do, go they go all the way back just directly into the fan community. Um, and I think, Jamie, if it's okay with you, uh, although it's very late and I can barely keep my eyes open, I'm going to keep them open for another two minutes because I want to read once again, the names of our patrons because we have some new ones in here and uh, we are now at 52, I believe That's active awesome. patrons, which is freaking crazy. And I'm going to read your names right now and I'm going to mispronounce half of them. Okay. 
Alex, well, actually, no, I'm not going to mispronounce half of them because I can say personally that I'm friends with over half of these people. So I actually know how their names are pronounced, which is pretty cool when you think about it. That, you know, mo- for the most part, everybody on this list is somebody that I had never met before doing these shows. And now I consider many of these people actual real personal friends of, of mine. And I know of yours as well. Anyway, our patrons are Alexander Gates, Andrew Tracy, Andy Ev, Ben Fletcher, Ben Wardinsky, Brennan Lutber, Burke Bennett, Carlo Rosa, Chase Cupo, CL11B, Craig Wright, Dan Ferlito, Dan Purpletree, Darren Gold, Dave Joyce, Dave Turner, David Benson, David Holmes, Dom, Dwight Paulson, Gene McDonald, Graham Zirk, Jackie Childers, Ch- Jackie Childers, sorry, Jason Struess, uh, Yoel Thomas Rosmo. Is it Joel Thomas Rosmos? I don't know. Joel or Yoel? I don't. I might be saying that wrong. I'm going to say Joel Thomas Rosmos, Jonas Holmston. Jordan Mason, Julian Casey, Ken S., Kevin, Kyle Burton, Mike Dennis, Murray Kucharawi, Nathan Gribble, Nigel Carroll, Paul Goodfellow, Perry Chicos, Peter from the Midwest, Rachel Cordy, Reno D., Richard Blackwell, Richie Ammons, Sethicus 0480, Stephen Bischoff, Stephen Ains, Steve Appleman, Stuart Fowither, Thomas Cruzaz, Thurian, Tim Hazeldean, Tim Lawson, Wookie Howell, Xander House, and Zachary Rice. We love each and every one of you, and we are so grateful for all that you've done. And there's another announcement that's coming to me now that we should say, which is, because uh, I was reading Reno's name, you might have seen this on social media, oh, oh, oh. but uh, it, we haven't said this on air, I don't think yet, no, which is that we I are launching a limited... Too, but go ahead. <laughs> we have so many freaking <laughs> announcements on this show. We are launching a limited series on Dune, the the book, the series of books, the Lynch film, the Hodorowsky abandoned concept, the uh, everything else that goes along with it, the fandom, um, the philosophical implications of it, the design implications of it, and of course, Denis Villeneuve's completed uh, but much delayed <laughs> new film that when we started this series, uh, we thought was coming out within a few, a couple of months, and so we're like, oh man, we got to get on this, and now we have a whole year, so we're yeah. going to be rethinking some of the series and adding some more episodes to it, and we're going to have some guests on, and it's going to be me and Jamie with our great friend Reno. Um, and some other faces in fandom will be on there as well. And it's going to be so fun. And that will be coming out uh, probably in the next month and a half or so. Absolutely. Last but not least, we did announce a audio drama, an original audio drama called The Tides of Night, Aliens, The Tides of Night or whatever, written by our friend Connor Murdoch. Uh, we announced it a long time ago. It was supposed to come out over the summer. Obviously, we're, li- we're living in a pandemic. So everything takes extra long. We finally got the main... Uh, portion of this audio drama so i can start um editing it but i won't be able to start editing it until i finish another audio drama that i started in the interim because it was taking so long so um we haven't announced this other audio drama is for shoulder of orion we haven't really fully announced that yet so i won't get into that quite yet um but the tides of night is on its way hopefully I, I, I don't know if I can say by December. It's a it's a bitch. It's good. It's huge. It's the largest uh, audio drama we've ever done. Um, it's very it's very um, ambient and cinematic in its sound, and it takes place sort of in wartime. It's going to be great. It's a lot of work. Um, I'm editing it. I'm doing the sound design. Patrick's doing the music. Um, so maybe by the first of the year. Not really sure, but we have all the pieces in place mostly. So we're going to get to work. So I just want to give everyone an update on that. That is a long-awaited product that we have been talking about for years now, and this is a really exciting time. i got to get on that freaking music because it is coming up. It's finally ready to go now. I know. 
And uh, once again, supported entirely by Patreon support. That, that, that is the reason why we are able to do these things and the reason why we are able to um, put them out and host them and have a website to put them on, etc. So thank you all so much for listening. Thank you so much for being there. Thank you so much for being a part of this fandom. And uh, we love you. Indeed. For more on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.